Welcome to the Close Set Podcast. My name is Themistocles Alexis. Today we'll be revisiting the life and work of Joseph H. Lewis, specifically a handful of classic B-movie noir films he helmed between 1945 and Joseph H. Lewis and a handful of classic and influential noir films he made between the mid-40s and mid-50s. Before we get to all that, though, uh, first of all, I would like to give a special shout-out to all the uh, the new listeners. As per usual, I've been keeping track of the numbers, and I always love finding out where, uh, where all the new listeners are from. And I am very, very proud and happy to report that as of late, we've gotten new listeners from Ireland, Switzerland, Turkey even... India, listeners from the UK, the States, and of course Canada, which is my home base. So I just wanted to let you know that, uh, that I see your ass, and uh, that I'm very appreciative and very thankful for your support, and uh, thanks for showing us some love, and keep it coming. And on that note, uh, if you would like to support the podcast, if you would like to uh, subscribe and all that good stuff, leave comments. You can find us on the Spotify, the Apple Podcasts, the Google Podcasts. And, of course, the Podbean, which is our hosting site. Whatever your pleasure is, you know what to do, I'm sure. And if you'd like to uh, stay on top of what's happening with the show and, you know, stay in the loop as to what's coming up next and all that good stuff, you can follow us on the Instagram at closedsetpodcast. That is closedsetpodcast. And you can also contact us via email if you'd like at closedsetpod at gmail.com. That is closedsetpod at gmail.com. Questions, comments, feedback, all that good stuff, you know what to do. And with all that good stuff out of the way, let us boogie. Now, Joseph H. Lewis was a very prolific director, and he worked under the old studio system, uh, which was basically just cranking out films at a breakneck pace left and right through the 30s, 40s, and even the 50s. And Lewis worked for pretty much every major studio in operation during that time, put out nearly 40 films in about 20-some years, directed dozens of episodes of television as well. His best work... Although Lewis worked in a variety of genres, he made horror films, musicals, uh, romantic comedies, war films, you name it. Uh, but his best work was uh, were uh, the sort of B-movie noirs that he made between the mid-40s and mid-50s. And the ones that we're going to be looking at in detail today are first My Name is Julia Ross, So Dark the Night, The Undercover Man, Gun Crazy, and The Big Combo. And being a B-movie director, Lewis often had to work with very tight shooting schedules, very low budgets, uh, but he developed as a, repu- a reputation as a director who knew how to sort of make the most of limited means and limited resources and sort of transcend the, the limitations that often come with B-movie productions and elevate them into some classic and, and beloved noir films that I think still hold up and stand the test of time and are still very beloved to this day. And this was at a time when... The 40s and 50s are basically the two defining decades of film noir. Uh, that's when that, that, that genre and that style of filmmaking and that aesthetic was at its peak. And it was also at a time when studios basically had to um, put a little more effort, if you will, into their B-movie productions because back in the day, studios essentially owned uh, theater chains as well and they could basically unload packages of films and basically sell their films in bulk to theaters 
uh, before those films were even made. And there was a long court battle that ensued between the major studios, even the, even the smaller studios, and the American government, and it was a case that lasted all through the 40s. It's known as the Paramount case. And it was as a result of that lengthy court battle between the studios and the government that, that many studios basically had to um, make more of a concerted effort to crank out respectable pictures uh, because they couldn't just sell films in bulk on reputation anymore or based on brand recognition. And so Joseph H. Lewis came up during that era. It was during that time that he actually made his best work, and so he was kind of a direct beneficiary of that of what came out of that court battle and this, these new regulations, but we're going to talk about all that uh, as we go along. We'll get to that in a little bit. And as per usual, we will start at the very beginning. Now, Joseph H. Lewis was born on April 6, 1907 in New York City. Some sources say he was born in 1900. I don't know where that comes from. The majority of them state that he was born in 1907. And like I said, he was a New Yorker. He was born to Russian Jewish immigrant parents. Uh, his mother was named Ernestine, his father was named Leopold, and he was an optometrist. He had a shop uh, in Manhattan. And Lewis himself, the H, by the way, in Joseph H. Lewis stands for Harold. And I have seen, I've seen in a couple places that his birth name was actually Harold Lewis. I don't know if that's correct. Although it could be, and maybe he just had to take a different name once he joined the Directors Guild out in Hollywood. I don't really know what the story behind that is, but I do know that the H stands for Harold. Uh, but in any case, I digress. And so uh, Lewis grew up on the Upper East Side of Manhattan near Columbia University, went to high school in the Bronx, and he wanted to be an actor in his youth. Keep in mind, he grew up during the 20s when silent films were still, uh, were still the norm, and like many young boys at that time, he was a very big fan of the silent film star Rudolph Valentino, and his brother Ben had actually gone to Hollywood first. He had moved out to California and had gotten work as a film editor. And so Joseph H. Lewis followed his brother Ben out to California, got a job at MGM, uh, basically doing menial work, cleaning magazines and loading them with film. And he started working in the industry at a time when, uh, during the transition, essentially, of silent films moving into sound. The first official sound film is commonly credited to The Jazz Singer, which came out in 1927 with Al Jolson, and so Lewis started working in Hollywood around this time, and he worked as a camera assistant at first, and then he eventually worked his way up uh, as an assistant film editor, much like his brother, and he worked for Mascot Studios, which was a, a smaller outfit, and they ended up merging with three others to form a studio that was named Republic, and Lewis worked for them for a while, and he was cutting films throughout the 30s, until eventually he co-directed a film uh, called Navy Spy with Crane Wilbur in 1937. And it was in that same year that he ended up moving to Universal Studios, and he was contracted to make, I believe, six westerns, B-westerns. And his first solo effort as a director came with Courage of the West, which came out in 1937. Now, I should probably clarify what we mean by B-movies. I probably should have done this earlier, but just because it's going to come up pretty often as we go along here. B-films are essentially low-budget productions that don't really have any household names or, or big bankable stars. And back in the day, when you went to see a picture in the theater you would often go see a double a double feature. And so the B picture was basically the second half of the double feature. You would go in and see the big the big production, the A-list the production with all the big stars and the production values and all that stuff, and then the second half of the double feature would usually be the B picture. So think of it as uh, the B-side to a single in music. It's the same idea. And so Lewis starts making these B-westerns at Universal, and... To give you an idea, he really didn't have much to work with. The studios at the time, especially in the 30s, when the studio system was flourishing and they were cranking out pictures like they were nothing, and I know we've mentioned this on the show before, but Lewis was working with very tight shooting schedules, six days, maybe a week to shoot an entire picture, 
with terrible budgets. I mean, they were giving him peanuts to work with, but the studios didn't really care. It was very much factory filmmaking. They were just, they bang out a picture, put it out and forget about it, and then just moved on to the next. And so Lewis was a workhorse from very, very early on in his career. And he moved on into the early 40s. He started uh, working in different genres. He directed the great horror film star Bela Lugosi in a film called Invisible Ghost in the early 40s. He did a couple films with the Eastside Kids for Monogram Studios, I believe it was. Uh, he made The Mad Doctor of Market Street with Lionel Atwill. And uh, he also made a musical called Minstrel Man, which uh, is still very highly regarded today. I believe that came out in 1944. So uh, Lewis became a very versatile and workmanlike director from day one, essentially. And this was a time, because he'd started working as an editor, and then was basically just thrust into working for these studios at a sort of breakneck pace, he basically started experimenting. And, like I said, trying to make the most of what limited means the studios gave him when making these pictures, and... <laughs> he came to earn the nickname Wagon Wheel Joe because he had developed a habit of, of shooting through a wagon wheel just to make the composition or the shot more interesting. And then World War II comes and Lewis ends up serving in the Signal Corps in the U.S. Army during the war. And it was he actually made films for the Army during this time, although from what I understand, they were mostly sort of instructional videos, training videos and the like. Uh, but then the war ends in 1945, and it's after the war that Lewis begins making his best work. He sort of... He kind of turns the corner as a filmmaker, if you will. And so in 1945, he made a film called The Falcon in San Francisco for RKO Pictures, which was a huge studio at the time. And it is the 11th film in the Falcon film series. So The Falcon was basically a, an amateur detective. George Sanders had originally starred as The Falcon, and then his brother Tom Conway took over, and the two of them had done a couple Falcon films together. So this was the 11th installment in the series. And it stars Tom Conway as the Falcon, and it's got his bumbling sidekick Goldilocks, who's played by Edward Brophy. And the two of them go to San Francisco, supposedly, you know, to take some time off, take a little vacation. And sure enough, on the train ride over, they find out one of the passengers has been murdered. Uh, the plot thickens as soon as they arrive in, arrive in San Francisco. Some underworld figures get involved. There's a silk smuggling operation that gets uncovered, and, you know, shenanigans ensue. All right, mister, get out. Me? Yeah, you. You're wanted down at headquarters. On what charge? Suspicion of kidnapping. Kidnapping? I was just taking the child home. Where do you live, little girl? I live on Knob Hill. So you were just taking her home, were you? Well, you're three miles past Knob Hill District already. Annie, why did you do this? Don't try to dump it in her lap. Come on. But you've got to believe him. He isn't kidnapping me. He's a nice man. They always are, honey. And it's a good little ditty. I mean, it's, it's one of many... The Falcon was one of many series one of many long-running detective film series that uh, Hollywood was cranking out in the 30s and 40s. I mean, you had the Thin Man series with Nick and Nora Charles, played by uh, William Powell and Myrna Loy. You had uh, the Michael Shane series, which came out in the early 40s and starred Lloyd Nolan. Those were B-movie productions as well. You had Mr. Moto, those, <laughs> those Peter Lorre pictures that came out in the late 30s. And, of course, you had uh, the Sherlock Holmes series with Basil Rathbone as Holmes, and Nigel Bruce's Watson, I think they believe, I think they made something like 14 films together. So The Falcon is basically one, another one of these series, and it's not bad. Uh, and Tom Conway's pretty good, I gotta say. He's this sort of suave and, you know, very classy ladies' man, as opposed to, you know, the old hard-boiled detective character, the say and, you know, all that shit. But I don't want to talk about this very much. The important thing about The Falcon in San Francisco is that it's the only film in the series Lewis directed, but it's still regarded today as one of the better entries in the series, and the success of the film is what brought Lewis to Columbia Pictures. It netted him a deal there, and it was a partnership at Columbia that lasted several years and produced many great films, the first of which was called My Name is Julia Ross, which came out in 1945, the same year he made The Falcon in San Francisco.
And so this film follows a young woman named Julia Ross, surprise, who's unemployed, she's broke, she's based in London. And so she finds work as a live-in assistant with an elderly woman, only to be drugged, kidnapped, gaslit, and repeatedly told she's the wife of this woman's son, who's a bit of a psychopath and with violent tendencies and a fixation on his pocket knife. And so they steal her away, they kidnap her, and bring her to this remote mansion near Cornwall. And because she's being repeatedly gaslit, I mean, she really doesn't have any leads to go on. She doesn't really know what's happening, why they've taken her hostage, why they're basically holding her prisoner in this opulent mansion. And so the film follows her as she tries to sort of outsmart and outmaneuver this this evil mother and son duo and, you know, get to the bottom of this whole mystery. And she's trying to get word to a friend and suitor of hers who's back in London. Now, what does this all mean? Why did we leave London? You haven't forgotten us again, have you, Marion? I'm not Marion, and you know it. All right, dear, let's not argue. Let's just have our tea and perhaps another nap, and, and then you'll feel much better. I'm afraid it's cold. Oh, Alice, uh, bring some more hot water quickly, please. Yes, Mum. I don't know what this is all about, but I promise you some very serious trouble unless you stop it immediately. You know perfectly well I'm Julia Ross. Marion, dear, please don't excite yourself so. You'll just bring out another attack. Attack? Attack of what? Nerves, dear. Just nerves. Oh, we do so want you to know you're with your own family. Nonsense. Marion, darling, control yourself. Let me go. We're doing everything in our power to make you well again. Let me go! If you don't stop this, I'll have you arrested! And gradually it's revealed that the son of this wealthy woman murdered his wife, and they've kidnapped Julia Ross and gaslit her. They keep calling her Marion, and they try to pass her off as, you know, mentally unstable, they introduce her to a few of the townspeople, and they have them all convinced that she isn't well and that she she's recovering from a nervous breakdown and, you know, to sort of establish cover. And, of course, they plan to murder her and, you know, frame it as an accident so they can cover up the original murder and then, you know, get off scot-free and avoid suspicion. It's all Marion's fault. She shouldn't have cried. Ralph, you never told me. Was it an accident? Or did you intend to kill her? after she'd made her will. I didn't plan it. I liked her well enough. But when she found out I'd been lying about my income, she accused me of marrying her for her money. I said, of course, that's what I married her for. Then she cried. She was always crying. Then she slapped me. And it's a short film. It's only about an hour and change long, but it's very lean, very meat and potatoes, very fast-paced. Certainly nothing, you know, self-indulgent or masturbatory about this film. And the script was written by a woman named Muriel Roy Bolton, and it was adapted from uh, a novel titled The Woman in Red, which was written by Anthony Gilbert, which is actually the pen name of a woman named Lucy Mallison. And let's just uh, talk about the cast real quick before we uh, get into a little more detail. Nina Falk is the lead, Julia Ross, who was then told she's a woman named Marion. Uh, she was in An American in Paris. She got nominated for an Oscar for a film called Executive Suite in 1954. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Ava Marie Saint ended up winning that year for On the Waterfront. And she was also in The Ten Commandments, and she, she was later in Spartacus as well. Just a, a great career. She plays Julia Ross in this, and she is wonderful as per usual. Doctor, listen. I haven't taken poison, and I'm not Marion Hughes. I'm Julia Ross, and I can prove it. If you'll only believe me for just a second and call Dennis Bruce in London, he'll tell you all about me. Then you really didn't take anything. No, I just said that to get you here. You've got to get me away. To a hospital if you think I'm crazy. Or anywhere, just to get me away from here. I know I sound crazy. But that's what they want everyone to think. 
because he killed his wife and she's lying out there at the bottom of the sea. And now they have to have someone to bury in her name. What makes you believe all this? I heard them talking. Dame May Witty, a great English actress, plays Mrs. Hughes, the elderly woman who is basically the architect of this whole scheme and who takes Julia hostage and holds her prisoner in their mansion. Uh, she was a very, very prolific theater actress, primarily, and she didn't break into Hollywood and films until much, much later in life. I think she was in her 70s. But even still, she starred in a lot of great films. She worked with Alfred Hitchcock on Suspicion, and she was in The Lady Vanishes, Vanishes as well. And speaking of gaslighting, she uh, the year before My Name is Julia Ross came out, May Woody had actually starred in the George Cukor film Gaslight with Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer, and uh, Ingrid Bergman ended up winning uh, an Oscar for Best Actress for it. And Mae Whitty is fantastic in this. She puts on this this exterior of, you know, this refined and aristocratic elderly woman. And then behind closed doors, when it's just her and Ralph, she's cold and calculating and clearly the brains of the operation. Why try to save her? Let her die. It's what we want. Don't be so stupid, Ralph. If she's taking poison, we must act as though we cared. If she's taking poison? Maybe just a trick to get a doctor here. We can't let her see a doctor. No. It's easy enough to fool stupid villagers into thinking she's crazy, but a doctor would know better. What'll we do? If she's really taken something, she may die quickly. If she hasn't, I'll call her a doctor. And her son, Ralph, is played by George McCready. George McCready made a career of basically playing very unsavory characters and villains. He was in the film noir Gilda, which is a classic noir directed by Charles Vidor, which came out in 1946. He was in Paths of Glory, the Stanley Kubrick film. He plays a general. That's probably my favorite performance of his. And he was in Detective Story as well, another great film. And he plays the murderous son of May Whitty, as I said, who murdered his original wife, Marion, after she discovered that he had lied about his income and that, you know, he's basically just a glorified mama's boy. Beautiful, isn't it? Would you like to listen to the sea and hear what it says? It doesn't say anything, does it? That's what I like about the sea. It never tells its secrets. But it has many, very many secrets. Uh, Roland Varno plays Dennis, who is a friend of Nina Fox's character, Julia Ross, and uh, a suitor of hers as well. And Julia Ross tries to get word to him that she's been taken hostage and so he can send for help and so on and so forth. And Anita Bolster plays Mrs. Sparks, who is a woman who po she poses as an employment agent to put Julia Ross in touch with Mrs. Hughes and her son. And, of course, it's revealed that she's in on the whole scheme and she works for them. And, and it's a really solid film, lovely visuals, and it's incredible what Lewis was able to do with limited means. I mean, again, he basically made a career of this, the way he was able to sort of recreate the interior of this opulent mansion, and, of course, without ever setting foot in England, <laughs> much less in London or Cornwall. I mean, the whole thing was made in California. And it is a little campy at times, George McCready hems it up in a couple of moments, you know, when you see him fussing with his pocket knife and he, he tears up a sofa cushion. Uh, but I will say, on the surface, it's basically a classic noir film or a gothic noir film, as many people like to categorize it. But it basically doubles as a commentary on traditional gender roles or gender roles of that time, I guess, because you see, you see Nina Fock at the beginning of the film as Julia Ross. I mean, yeah, she's broke, she's unemployed, she doesn't have a family or any attachments, really. But she's trying to make her way in the world, a young single woman. Upon finding employment, or so she believes, she basically has what is on the surface a traditional life thrust upon her. 
she's forced into this life where all of a sudden she has a husband and a mother-in-law and a nice house out in, you know, a lovely and quaint remote town. And so she is basically forced to live a somewhat, you know, or at least as someone who is on the outside looking in, she is forced to live a somewhat traditional life. Or that facade, I guess, is, is pushed on her. And sure enough, at the end of the film, she does end up getting married. Spoiler alert. I mean, she does end up settling for a traditional life. So I guess... So, you know, a lot of people have sort of theorized that the film is, in fact, a heavy commentary on just what uh, what little control women of that era had over their lives or just how limited their choices were in terms of, you know, the routes they could take in their lives and the kinds of people they could be. You know, I've made a resolution. The next time I apply for a job, I'll ask for the references. I know a good job. Secretary? Oh, a combination secretary, nurse, companion, that housekeeper. That sounds like a wife. Well, how about it? I'll have to have some time to think it over. How long? Oh, about five seconds. Um, but it's a really wonderful film. It is... Tensions are always high. It's a very fast-paced... It's very... Uh, it's a very gripping film, and the performances are wonderful. And interestingly enough, what's, you know, more impressive than anything is just how quickly and efficiently Lewis was able to make it. He was only given a shooting schedule of 12 days by Columbia, and they gave him 125000 to shoot it. Uh, he went a few days over, and he went over budget as well, but even still... The film was a critical success and a financial success. I think Columbia made somewhere in the vicinity of five or six million, which, you know, on that low a budget is a pretty solid profit margin, especially for that era, 1945. And Lewis moving to Columbia is important for a couple of reasons. I mean, obviously, his years there that followed kind of marked the beginning of him making, of him basically doing his best work as a filmmaker, for one thing. But most importantly, it came at a time when there was a, a bit of a drastic shift in the way a lot of studios had to do business. We talked about the Paramount case uh, at the top of the show, and this was a legal battle uh, that had begun with the U.S. government suing pretty much all the major studios uh, beginning in the late 30s. It's called the Paramount case because they were listed as the chief defendant, uh, but pretty much every major studio and even the smaller ones were involved in this court battle at some point. So you had the major five studios and the little three studios, which were which were all involved in this lawsuit, Columbia included. They were considered uh, one of the little three studios at the, at the time, if you can believe it. And one of the main conflicts of this case was, for one thing, studios being able to own chains of movie theaters, and not just that, to be able to do what used to be called blind booking or blind bidding, where they could essentially sell films in bulk, five, ten at a time, whatever it was, and oftentimes there were films that didn't even exist yet. I mean, they would they would basically just sell films to theaters based on, I don't know, brand recognition or whatever you want to call it. And so they would basically sell off films in bulk before they were even made, and then they could just throw something together for cheap and in a quick schedule and just crank out films like they were nothing. Hence this whole sort of factory filmmaking system that, that was basically the norm at that time. And so over the course of this long legal battle that basically stretched throughout the 40s, some more regulations and some conditions had been, had been implemented as a result of it. But a lot of the major studios kind of re refused to, to change the way they did business, at least for a time. Columbia, on the other hand, is one of the little three studios, started putting a little more attention and bigger budgets into the B pictures that they produced. Because now they actually had to sell theaters of proper existing films, as opposed to, you know, just selling them on the promise that these films would be made and not much else. And ultimately, the case re was resolved in 1948. It ended up going to the Supreme Court. And at the end of it all, these major studios, you know, small and big, were told to divest their money out of movie theaters because they had basically created an oligarchy or an oligopoly, I guess is, would be the more accurate term. And so it was during these changing times that Lewis started working for Columbia, and there was a lot of great work that followed. I mean, he made 
My Name is Julia Ross, he was off to a great start. And the next film he made for them after that came in 1946, and it's called So Dark the Night. And this is a, a detective noir story, and it stars Stephen Jure, who we're going to talk a little more about in a little bit. He plays a Paris detective, and he's a workaholic, a dogged detective who is obsessive when he's working on a case. You know, your classic sort of hard-nosed, dedicated detective will even bring his mother to justice if he has to. And he's told to take some time off for the first time in well over a decade, and he goes to a, a quaint French village named Saint-Margot. And during that time, he meets a younger local girl, and he falls in love with her, although she seems to be more in love with, uh, you know, the prospect of returning to the big city and life in Paris, and she's, upon arriving in the village, she's completely enamored with the car he drives, so, you know, she is, uh, her values may be uh, quite different than this police detective's Henri Cassin's. You wouldn't like it either if you had to stay here all the time. No? No, it's the same old thing year after year. You're born, you, you grow up, and, and then one day you die. You are born in the village of San Margot, and you would like to see Paris. Yes. How did you know? Well, every pretty girl would like to go to Paris. But people are born, they grow up, and they die there too, you know. Oh, but it's different. The theaters and cafes and, and beautiful clothes. Why, if a girl had beautiful clothes here, there'd be no one to notice her. And the two quickly become engaged. Unfortunately, the girl's father, Nanette's father, Pierre, he believes that Detective Cassin is too old for her, and he essentially poo-poos the engagement, and soon after that, Nanette ends up murdered. And so Cassin begins investigating, more victims turn up, Nanette's mom is murdered, her jealous lover Léon is murdered, and between Cassin's heartbreak, his grief, and this sort of mounting pressure to solve this case, even though he has very little, basically next to nothing to go on, he begins cracking a little bit, and his sanity is called in, into question. All my career, I lived by the laws of evidence. By such laws, I am guilty. This is utterly ridiculous. Monsieur, the proof of my guilt is right in your hand. But why? Why would you commit such senseless murders? I don't know. I don't know. But it must be so. I must have killed them, but I don't remember any of it. I don't know, but I would give anything to know. Henri, you have been under an emotional strain. You had been working too hard when you left here, and then these murders. Oh, monsieur, you are not suggesting I'm out of my mind. I'm imagining things, the evidence. I don't know what to think. It's incredible. I can't believe it. I insist you place me under guard while you investigate. Very well. You'll be confined to your office while you write up the record. Submit a detailed report to me. We will then order a complete, unbiased investigation of the case, which I'm sure will clear you entirely. Oh, thank you, monsieur. I'll let your imagination fill in the rest, or rather... I'll wait for you to see the film yourself because I've already kind of given too much away. But in any case, this is another solid noir film, and the great thing about it is that it's you watch the film. It takes a while to get going. It's only about 70 minutes long. It takes about a half hour for the whole mystery to get started and for, you know, things to switch gears a little bit. Uh, but it's a film that could easily fall into all these sort of classic cliches and tropes because you have you have the jealous lover and you have a lonely widow who's... You know, you're not really certain what role she plays in all this, and then you have the overprotected father who poo-poo's the engagement. But the film actually, does, the story, rather, does a really good job of, you know, of avoiding falling into all those sort of conventional traps. And if you're a stickler for realism or verisimilitude, for lack of a better term, for lack of a less pretentious term, you know, maybe it's not the truest film to life, but, you know, they get points for originality. Let's keep it at that. With uh, the turns the mystery takes and with... Cassin, you know, being revealed to be mentally ill and 
perhaps playing a greater role in these murders than initially suspected. And so let's talk about uh, the cast real quick before we uh, move on to some production notes. So Stephen Jure, like I said before, he stars as uh, Detective Cassin. Even though the story is set in France, he uh, himself was not French. He was actually Hungarian and uh, played a lot of ethnic characters over the course of his career, a very prolific actor. Uh, his accent isn't the best. I mean, he sounds like some kind of European, but I mean, not a proper French accent by any means. But even still, he's very, very good in this. And he, uh, like I said, had a very prolific career. Like George McCready, he co-starred in the film Gilda, which came out the same year in 1946. He plays Uncle Pio. He, he was also in Spellbound, the great Alfred Hitchcock film with Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman. He was in All About Eve in 1950, which was another huge sensation. And he's wonderful in this. Commissaire, I have failed completely. I feel no longer competent to carry on. Henri, you are overwrought. This affair has upset you emotionally. You have been too close to it. It is true. Never before have I been called upon to investigate a case in which I was personally involved. But to leave a city like Paris, the capital of Europe, and go to a small village and fail completely, I tell you, monsieur. There is no logical motive for the murders. The murder is as elusive as my own shadow. He leaves no trace. It's just as though he wouldn't exist. And yet he does exist. Micheline Cherel plays Nanette, the young woman to whom uh, Henri Cassin becomes engaged. And she was uh, an actual French actress. She worked primarily in the 30s and 40s, didn't do much film work after that, I don't believe. And like I said, in this film, she doesn't seem to be in love with Cassin as much as she is with what his lifestyle could promise her or what the sort of potential for, for bright big city life that he brings. And of course she has a, a jealous lover named Leon to contend with and that complicates things a little bit, especially early on. Tell me again about Paris, Henri. Don't you ever tire of hearing the same thing again and again? Never. Someday I'm going there. You are? Oh yes, 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 yes. What about Leon and his farm? Oh, no, not Leo. But that's a good life, Nanette. You're engaged to him. He's young. Some late child would promise. Doesn't mean a thing. Besides, Leon wouldn't like Paris. He thinks only of his farm. Also, uh, Micheline Cherel, fun fact, was married to the great French actor Paul Maurice, who we talked about in our Jean-Pierre Melville episode. He was in Le Deuxième Souffle and Army of Shadows, a wonderful French actor. They were only married for a few years in the 50s, if memory serves. Eugene Borden, yet another French actor, he plays Nanette's father Pierre in this, who's an innkeeper in the, in the village of Saint-Margot, where Cassin is staying. Borden was French, like I said. He moved to the U.S. Uh, in his late teens and uh, went on to have a, another very prolific career as well, much like Stephen Jure. Look, my friend, this is not easy for me to say because I like you. I, w I would be proud to have a man like yourself, a member of my family. But a man, a man at your age isn't meant for marriage. Anne Cody, who's a Belgian actress, plays uh, Nanette's mother. And she runs the inn with, with her husband Pierre, and she soon turns up dead not long after Nanette. They're the main cast. And the film is set in France, like I said, but as was the case throughout Lewis's career, he basically had to recreate a French village on the back lot of the studio in California. And to Lewis's credit, I mean, he admitted to never having set foot in France, period, much less a rural French village like the fictional Saint-Margot. But talk about making the most of limited means. He had the art director recreate a French village using photographs that Lewis had pulled for inspiration. And they walked around the back lot. They had found 
they had found an old sort of discarded home that they had that had been used in an old war picture, and they had the art director make some adjustments, and sure enough, they were able to recreate this quaint French village. And it's just impressive just how, how resourceful and how ingenious Lewis could be. You know, even though they're recreating a French village, and in some sequences the city of Paris on this back lot in Colombia in Southern California, um, he manages to build this welcoming French microcosm, if you will, this little universe, and he manages to pull you in. And, there's, and obviously adding to all that is the great score and the clever camera work and these stunning shots that were framed at, a, at an angle. And of course, it helps that he used actual French speakers, French actors and Belgian actors, you know, people who are basically the genuine article. You know, talk about make, making the most of what's available to you. And not just that, he, again, working on a very tight schedule, was given 12 days... And he had to use props from the Columbia back lot as well. Although the shoot altogether ended up taking three weeks, which is still pretty good. And the film's gotten mixed reviews, at least when it came out. But it's much more highly regarded today than it was then. And like I said, it's a solid mystery. I like that it avoids all the usual tropes and cliches. And interestingly enough, during the making of it, Harry Cohn, who was the head of Columbia, had asked him to direct a big-budget production and an A-level picture which turned out to be the Jolson story, which, of course, told the story of Al Jolson, who starred in The Jazz Singer, which is credited as being the first sound film in 1927. And he asked him to direct this while he was still shooting So Dark the Night. That said, Lewis turned it down, saying that he would rather focus on making So Dark the Night and bringing it to completion before he could start thinking about his next project, much to Harry Cohn's dismay. However, Lewis did end up stepping in to direct the musical sequences of the Jolson story, and that's pretty much all everybody, anybody ever remembers about the film, and it turned out to be a smash hit. Uh, and Alfred E. Green ended up directing the, uh, the other portions of the film and, you know, just the actual story. And so after So Dark the Night and the musical sequences on the Jolson story, Lewis uh, stays busy, directs a swashbuckler film with Larry Parks called The Swordsman. Larry Parks was the one who played Al Jolson in the Jolson story, so this was their second time working together. And he also directed The Return of October, which was a comedy with Glenn Ford and Terry Moore. And speaking of Glenn Ford, this brings us to the next classic noir film that Lewis directed for Columbia called The Undercover Man, which came out in 1949. In the cracking of many big criminal cases, such as those of John Dillinger, Lucky Luciano, and Al Capone, among others, the newspaper headlines tell only of the glamorous and sensational figures involved. But behind the headlines are the untold stories of ordinary men and women acting with extraordinary courage. This picture concerns one of those men. Now, this film, of course, stars Glenn Ford as a treasury agent named Frank Warren, who is tasked with investigating a big-shot crime boss who is known only as the Big Fellow and bringing him down for tax evasion. Now, if this story sounds familiar, it's because it's inspired by uh, the fall of notorious Chicago crime boss Al Capone. Al Capone was a Brooklyn guy who ran the Chicago mob and was a, a bit of a trigger-happy boss. However, it was his tax crimes that ended up getting him sent to prison, not his violent crimes. Uh, I believe he was charged with over 20 counts of tax evasion. He was ultimately convicted of five counts in 1931 and sentenced to 11 years in prison. And so that proved to be the, the basis or the inspiration for this story in the, the Undercover Man. And so it follows Glenn Ford as he travels to the town where the big fella's running his operation. And he pairs up with a few agents. He tries to broker a deal with an informant to get the big fella's books and ledgers on his businesses. But the contact ends up murdered. And so they have to go through another, another avenue and they try tracking down a bookkeeper who works for the big fella and get some of his, get some information from him. Uh, and they ultimately break the case by getting to the big fella's lawyer and a man who works for him. 
And the difference between this story and the Al Capone tax evasion case on which it's based, for one thing, uh, Al Capone came to prominence during Prohibition as a boss. This story is set in the present day, in this case, after World War II. And unlike Capone, I suppose, uh, the big fellow, the crime boss in this film, is shown owning various businesses, various fronts, instead of applying his trade primarily as a bootlegger. And interestingly enough, the big fella is only shown briefly in this film. You see him in just in one single scene, uh, and you only see him from, from the rear. You never get a good look at him. Uh, so Glenn Ford is the star of this, and he's very good in this. I never really thought he was a master thespian, not known as an actor of great range necessarily, but he's very, very good in this. Yet again, like a couple actors we've mentioned thus far, Glenn Ford was the star of the film Gilda, which he had done in 1946. He with him and Rita Hayworth and George McCready and Stephen Geray, as we said before. Uh, he was in Blackboard Jungle, the great Richard Brooks film with Sidney Poitier in the mid-50s. Uh, and he was in Pocketful of Miracles, the Frank Capra film, which came out in 1961. Nina Falk comes back in this, and she plays Glenn Ford's wife. And she is, I mean, at the risk of sounding, you know, cliched or whatever, corny, she is basically his rock, his voice of sanity. And they, there's a lovely scene between them when Ford finds out that his wife's life may be in danger because his investigation is cutting a little too close for the big fella in his outfit. And so he hops a train, goes out to see his wife, who is waiting on her parents' farm until he can, you know, wrap up his investigation. And the two of them have a lovely scene together under a tree where he's thinking about leaving his job and just settling down and living a quiet life with his, with his wife. And it's a beautiful and very touching scene between them, and Nina Falk is wonderful in it. You're thinking of quitting, aren't you, Frank? What? No, I'm not thinking of quitting. I'm just thinking of our future, that's all. Look, this is due to your wife, remember? All right, I... I am thinking of quitting. When? No. Is it because you can't beat the case? No, oh, I've had tough cases before. It isn't that. Is it because of what happened the other day to that guy Rocco? We get city newspapers up here, too. I, I, just, I just can't put my finger on exactly what it is. Is it because you're worried about me? Oh, don't lie to me, Frank. That's why you came up here, isn't it? Uh, James Whitmore is in this as well, the great James Whitmore, who is in the classic noir film directed by John Huston called The Asphalt Jungle, which came out in 1950. And he was also in The Shawshank Redemption. Most people know him as Brooks from Shawshank. And he also got nominated uh, for an Oscar for Best Actor for playing uh, Harry S. Truman, former U.S. president, in a one-man performance, basically, uh, in 1975. It was called Give Him Hell, Harry. And he's great in this as usual. Six months of being punched day and night, this machine's finally got some sense. It broke down. We'll get a new one in the morning. Finish your calculations right here. Machine quits, so do I. Where you got to go at this hour? To sleep. What are we trying to do here? Establish a world's record for working overtime? Well, you don't want to be on this case forever, do you? I have been on it forever. Roast in the summer, freeze in the winter. Look, I'm hot. I'm tired. I'm... My wife's 200 miles away, and I haven't been up to see her yet. George, I'm fed up, too. I'd like to see my wife and kid. But Frank is right. If he feels that... What it's... does he know about feelings? He's got ice water in his face. He's an adding machine. Punch him and a number comes out. Barry Kelly. He and Nina Falk are probably the two best performances in this film. Barry Kelly is the lawyer, Edward O'Rourke, of the big fella and his mob operation. And it's he who has the most dealings with Glenn Ford's character over the course of this investigation. And Barry Kelly plays him... And he basically made a career of playing cops and, you know, sort of crooked characters. He was in Force of Evil. He was in Asphalt Jungle with James Whitmore as well, plays a dirty cop in there too. 
but he is wonderful. This is the lawyer, just sort of totally pompous and arrogant and cool as a cucumber and dressed to the nines. You know, someone who's totally in control until he isn't. And of course, that's where the break in the case comes. You've been putting on quite a show. All that seizing of books, all that sweating up in the federal building. Oh, it's been quite a lot of work, you know. I'm very impressive to all parties concerned. Despite the fact that you could never find enough evidence to convict my client of spitting on the sidewalk, it's worth something. Purely nuisance value. How much and how do you want it? And David Bauer is in this as well. He plays another agent who's working with Glenn Ford in this investigation, although he's credited as David Wolf in this film for some reason. Anthony Caruso is in this as well. He plays Salvatore Rocco, who's the bookkeeper that Glenn Ford and his team are targeting. And Leo Penn is in this as well. He plays Sidney Gordon, the man who works for Edward O'Rourke, the lawyer, and who later ends up becoming a turncoat, basically, and becoming the star witness of the case. Leo Penn, father to actor Sean Penn and the late Chris Penn, and was married to Eileen Ryan, who was also an actress herself. We talked about him a little bit in our Ida Lupino episode. He was in Not Wanted, her first film, which coincidentally came out the same year as this, The Undercover Man in 1949. Leo Penn had been blacklisted, so didn't get to do a ton of screen work as an actor, but became a very, very prolific director in television. And speaking of connections to Ida Lupino, Malvin Wald, who was her partner in her production company, The Filmmaker Zinc, he was a screenwriter, and he actually contributed to the script of The Undercover Man, and he's credited in the opening credits as having done some work on it. So there's two connections to Ida Lupino in this film. And it's just a solid, hard-boiled crime film with the law enforcement agents at the center of it, and the performances are solid, and I love that it's shot kind of documentary style, very ahead of its time in that sense, and it's also very fitting given that, you know, it's inspired by a true story, and there are lots of great one-shot takes in this. That's I know I, I mentioned this probably every other episode, and this is the first place they show up in Lewis's films, and this would later become, or it would quickly become, rather, a sort of trademark of his, a hallmark of his style. Just scenes where the camera is slowly moving with the actors. The first one that comes to mind is very early in the film, where Glenn Ford first arrives to town, and he makes contact with this informant who's supposed to broker a deal for the big fella's books and ledgers, and they're meeting in this, this sort of crummy room, and the informant's walking him through how the deal's supposed to go down, and where to meet the contact, and so on and so forth, and what the payout's going to be. And it's a very simple, very simple scene. The informant is played by Rob Osterloh. It's a brief appearance, but he's really good in this. Just someone who's kind of weary and maybe a little despondent and jaded. He shows you all those little colors without doing very much. How about it? Can I get the 10%? What do you got? Collectors, almost all of them. Joints, every single one of them. How much money they got, who's got it? Guy in charge of the account for five years. What's his name? Joe Dokes, George Washington. He won his birth certificate too. He's got no name. What if he wants to cut too? Take care of him out of my end. For this, you got my personal guarantee. All right. There's another great one-shot take where the agents they've set up their operation. They're working out of this cramped and cluttered little office. And they're six months into their investigation, they have nothing to go on, and they're kind of venting their frustrations in this little office, and then it's there that they hatch a plan to collect the signatures of basically everybody who works for the big fella, hoping it'll it'll lead them to whoever fills out their books. One little action, don't you? A lot. Got any ideas? You're the boss, you're the man with ideas. Oh, cut it out, will you? We're all in this thing together. Even on those dummy bank accounts, somebody had to sign the deposit slips, right? Okay. We go around and collect 
the signatures of everybody that works on the syndicate. 5,000 people work for the syndicate. What are you going to do, ask them to sign a petition? Hey, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe we don't need 5,000. Maybe 50 will do if they're the right ones. So some great visuals in this, and again, just a good, solid meat and potatoes crime story. Uh, and interestingly enough, this film marked the end of Joe Lewis's stint at Columbia. So he ended up clashing with Robert Rawson. Robert Rawson had worked on the script, and he was a producer on this film as well. He later went on to direct great films like uh, The Hustler, Lilith, and he directed uh, All the King's Men with Roger Crawford the same year in 1949. In any case, according to Lewis, he and Rawson got along very well during the making of The Undercover Man, and I had read a story that after the film had been shot that Rawson wanted to take the film from Lewis and have a say on the final cut of the film, and he and Rawson clashed over this, and it was over this that Lewis ended up going to Harry Cohn and basically saying that he was done with Columbia and that he didn't want to work for them anymore. Although, I have since read in interviews with Lewis that the film was basically completed, it had been edited by the time Rawson, you know, by the time this beef happened, and he believed that whatever changes Rawson ended up making, if any, weren't, you know, substantial or major, they didn't do much to alter the, the film as a whole. But in any case, this marked the end of Joe Lewis's stint at Columbia, even though he and Harry Cohn, for the most part, had had a very good working relationship. Harry Cohn was actually a pretty reviled man in Hollywood, and he's since come to be known as the unlamented Harry Cohn, which pretty much tells you everything you need to know. But uh, surprisingly enough, Lewis claims that the two of them had a very good working relationship and uh, had a lot of respect for each other. However, after the making of The Undercover Man, he ended up leaving Columbia, and the next film he made, uh, this one for United Artists, was called Gun Crazy, which came out in 1950, and this one is still regarded as his best, and Lewis has said in interviews that it is his personal favorite of all the films he made. And so this film follows a young couple, two young people, who are crack shots, they're expert marksmen, they're, you know, they know their way around guns, and the two of them meet... By chance, one night, they fall in love, and they soon embark on a lengthy crime spree. Now, the man of the couple, Bart, his fascination with guns begins in childhood, and as a boy, he gets arrested for stealing a gun from a local shop. He gets sent to reform school, and later has a stint in the army teaching recruits how to shoot. And when he's on leave from the army, he meets up with a few friends of his from town. They go to a carnival that's passing through town, and it's there that he meets Lori, who works in the carnival. She's a traveling performer. And like Bart, she herself is an, ex is an expert shooter, and she challenges him to a contest during her performance. And the two of them basically immediately fall in love. <laughs> he, he wins the contest, starts working with her in the carnival as they travel around, you know, from town to town. And however, their relationship draws some jealousy or the ire of the man who runs the carnival, Packy. And there's a confrontation between the three of them, and they ultimately have to leave the carnival, and they end up resorting to stick-ups and robberies as a way of supporting themselves to earn money. And they rob a few shops, they rob some hotels at the beginning, but gradually, their heists get more daring, and they get bolder and bolder. And from these petty stick-ups, they end up robbing a bank, and then a meatpacking company. And the interesting thing about this is the conflict here with Bart's character, especially. Because despite his fascination with guns and his skills as a marksman, Bart refuses to shoot those who enter their crosshairs during their crime spree. He refuses to take another life. Meanwhile, Laurie has actually killed before, and she doesn't mind killing again if she deems it necessary. And despite this conflict, Bart sticks with her. I mean, he's madly in love with her. And, you know, instead of running the risk of losing her, he decides to stick with her. Even as the law begins closing in on them, and even as it becomes more and more likely that the two of them won't make it out of this crime spree alive, much less, you know, retire to Mexico and reach old age. We're killers. You're not. I am. No, we both are. You go 
a racket like this to get something at the point of a gun. You have to be ready to kill even before you start a job. I'm as guilty as you are. I've just let you do my killing for me. I might as well tell you. I've done it before. I killed a man in St. Louis, too, with Packy. We were sticking him up, and I got scared, and I killed him. It's always because I get scared. I, I get so scared, I can't even think. I can just kill. I'll go away. I will. I promise I'll never bother you again. Oh, no. We tried that once, remember? Yes, but this time... Oh, no. We go together, Laurie. I don't know why. Maybe, like, guns and ammunition go together. I'll do anything you want. Anything, Bud. Anything you say. Anything. And this is an incredible noir film. I mean, it's obviously considered a B-movie, but really that, that term, that label, really doesn't do it justice. I mean, like The Undercover Man, it's shot kind of documentary style, the high sequences especially, which we're going to talk about more in a little bit. But let's talk about the cast before we move on to some production notes. So, Laurie is played by Peggy Cummins, who is an Irish actress who was born in Wales. And initially, the producers, the King brothers, they wanted to cast Veronica Lake initially. And interestingly enough, Peggy Cummins at this time had kind of fallen out of favor with the studios that she, is, she had been working with. Uh, but Joseph H. Lewis ended up meeting with her. The two of them hit it off, and uh, he chose to cast her in this. And she is wonderful. Probably the best performance of her career. John Dahl plays Bart, so they're the, they're the Bonnie and Clyde of this, this crime film. And John Dahl died young. He was only 50 years old when he died in the early 70s, but still was in some, some great films. He was in the Alfred Hitchcock film Rope in 1948 with Jimmy Stewart and Farley Granger. Uh, and he was in Spartacus as well. Barry Kroger plays Packy, the guy who runs the carnival. Frequently during her extensive travels, Miss Starr has been challenged by various local marksmen to shoot in competition with her. Tonight, the little lady tells me that she is so confident of her ability that she is willing to double her standing offer of $250 to any person who can outshoot her. There is only one condition. The challenging local artist must agree to award to Miss Starr an honorarium of only 10% of the stakes she offers. An honorarium of only $50 against $500. Do I hear a challenge? Annabelle Shaw plays Bart's sister Ruby, and their efforts to flee the law and make their way out of the U.S. into Mexico sort of lead them back to her house. Morris Karnofsky plays the judge at the beginning of the film who sends a young Bart to reform school. Harry Lewis plays Clyde, who's Bart's childhood friend, and as an adult... In the film, he's a deputy, and with Bart and Laurie making their way back to his old town as out of desperation, on their way out of the country, he is left with little choice but to try to track them down and bring them to justice. Harry Lewis was also in Key Largo, which came out in 1948, a couple of years prior, with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, and that of Richie Robinson. And rounding out the cast is Nedrick Young, who plays Bart's other childhood friend, Dave, who grows up to become a newspaper reporter. And Nedrick Young was, uh, like Leo Penn, was blacklisted, and... Worked primarily as a screenwriter, co-wrote The Defiant Ones with Sidney Poitier and Tony Curtis, won an Oscar for it, and he also co-wrote Inherit the Wind, which came out in 1960 with Spencer Tracy. Now, they're the cast. Speaking of which, some interesting discoveries I made about the casting of John Dahl. Now, we talked about before how Bart is conflicted, and if you look at the power dynamic of this relationship between him and Laurie, it's Laurie who has all the power. She doesn't want civilian life, she has no qualms about killing if she feels like she has to. These things don't sit well with Bart, but... He knows that if he doesn't go along with this, that she'll leave him. And, of course, he doesn't want that. He's madly in love with this woman. Look, let's not argue. I'll... I'll hock my guns. 
Give us enough dough to make another start. There isn't enough money in those guns for the kind of start I want. But I want things, a lot of things, big things. I don't want to be afraid of life or anything else. I want a guy with spirit and guts. A guy who can laugh at anything, who will do anything. A guy who can kick over the traces and win the world for me. Look, I don't want to look in that mirror and see nothing but a, a stick-up man staring back at me. You better kiss me goodbye, Bart. Because I won't be here when you get back. Come on, Bart. Let's finish it the way we started it, on the level. And in reading about this film and the making of it, Lewis had said that he wanted an actor who could show that sort of conflict and have that weakness in him. And I read that he actually wanted a gay actor to play the part. Now, John Dahl, for one thing, even though this is a classic B-noir film, he is not your classic sort of hyper-masculine, alpha-leading man, you know, the kinds that you would often see in these kinds of films. He was thin and had a very sort of boyish-looking face, and John Dahl himself was gay, but keep in mind, this was at a time where such things weren't really known outside of the Hollywood community. Of course, it's a very insular community, and of course, John Dahl wasn't the only gay actor of his time, but that kind of knowledge wasn't really made public domain, and in fact, a lot of studios in the early days of Hollywood went out of their way to make sure that such things didn't make it to the public. And so, I don't know, maybe Lewis thought that maybe Dahl was conflicted, about keeping his sexuality to himself and knowing that he couldn't just live as an openly gay man. And maybe that's why he cast him, thinking that that sort of internal conflict could translate to what Bart feels toward Laurie and their crime spree in the film. I don't know, I'm just speculating. Uh, but in any case, he ended up going with, uh, with John Dahl, and Lewis himself said that he gave John Dahl next to no direction in his performance as Bart. He was, just, he was convinced that, that Dahl would be able to play that sort of weakness and that vulnerability and that conflict that was going on inside Bart's character. And the other interesting thing about this is that, so when you watch the film and you see these two characters meet at the carnival, their attraction to each other is immediate. And Lewis gave John Dahl and Peggy Cummins direction for this scene, their first encounter at the carnival, uh, that has since become the stuff of legend. So the quotes go, when he directed John Dahl on how to play this scene, the quote goes, your cock's never been so hard. <laughs> Short, sweet, and to the point. And as for what he told Peggy Cummins, he told her, you're a female dog in heat and you want him, but don't let him have it in a hurry. Keep him waiting. And uh, it turns out that's all the two of them needed to hear because uh, they played the scene and the rest of the film to perfection, you ask me. How about the crown? Would you like to light the matches? Or you? Almost killed a man once. Shot a little too low. So did I. And also some interesting production notes. Peggy Cummins and John Dahl did all their own driving. I think there was only one instance in the film where Lewis actually used a rear projection, which was pretty common practice in, in the industry in those days. Uh, and like I said, it the film kind of resembles the, un, the undercover man aesthetically, sort of that gritty and documentary-esque style that it has. Uh, there's the famous bank heist sequence that I want to talk about. It is easily the most famous sequence of the film. And again, another long, single-shot take, and this thing was the stuff of genius. So, in the script, this bank heist scene took up about 17 pages. And initially, it had been planned with a multi-camera setup. It was going to be shot over three, four, five days, maybe. But Joseph H. Lewis decided to shake things up a little bit. He wanted to get creative with it. And what he ended up doing was shooting the entire heist sequence from inside their car in a single day. And the producers were happy about it because, you know, going this route would save them both time and money. 
and so Joseph H. Lewis ended up running a test with the extras first just to see if they could pull it off. And then they ended up running it properly with the actors and the whole nine. And so what happened was the scene begins with Peggy Cummins at the wheel and John Dahl in the passenger seat. And it follows them as they're slowly driving toward the bank that they're about to rob. They're looking around, looking for a parking spot. They're a little worried because it's crowded. And it follows them as they make their way towards the bank. They park right in front of it. John Dahl hops in to go complete the job. Meanwhile, Peggy Cummins is waiting at the wheel and she spots a cop nearby who's milling about. So she has to step out to distract him while John Dahl pulls off the job uninterrupted. And as he's coming out of the bank, they knock the cop unconscious. They hop in the car, peel off, and make their getaway. Right, it is pretty crowded. I wonder if there's going to be a parking spot. There's a car just pulled out. We can get in there. So I have to, yeah, yeah. Okay, right Fast in here. Fast as you can. Don't worry. It'll be a minute longer than I have to. Here goes nothing. Okay. Now, this entire sequence was shot in a single take. What they did was they went into the getaway car. They stripped everything out the back of it, behind the front row. And it has the, the car has that classic old front bench seat. Lewis and a couple of crew members all crammed into the back. And they put in a couple of boards, wooden boards. They greased the top one heavily so they could set the camera up on it and move it as needed throughout the scene. And they set up a saddle in there so the, camera, so the cameraman could sort of steady himself. And the dialogue between Peggy Cummins and John Dahl is improvised. So you, at the beginning of the, uh, of the scene where they're, they're worried about finding a parking spot... And, you know, they're kind of sizing the place up and they're a little worried about whether they're going to get close enough to the bank to pull off the job. All that sequence is ad-libbed. And the only people who knew that there was a, a movie being shot were, of course, the actors and the people working in the bank. And everybody who was out conducting their business and milling about and, you know, all of them were basically just innocent bystanders. They had no idea what was going on. And it is a genius, genius sequence. Again, I'm a sucker for the long one-shot takes. And th this is the thing. The camera never leaves the car. They shoot an entire heist from start to finish from the backseat of this car, and trust me when I tell you, even though you never see the robbery itself happen from within the bank, this sequence between them trying to find a parking space and Peggy Cummins having to step out and, you know, switch things up on the fly and sort of distract this cop so they could pull off the job, this sequence, it is every bit as tense as any heist sequence in any crime film you're going to see, and it really is the stuff of genius, and it's the most famous sequence of this film, and rightfully so. And the story of this film was based on a story that had shown up in the Saturday Evening Post by McKinley Cantor. And McKinley Cantor ended up co-writing the script with Millard Kaufman, or at least that's what the credits said. And then, of course, it was revealed sometime later that Kaufman was actually a front for Dalton Trumbo, who was a great screenwriter who had been blacklisted by the House of Un-American Activities Committee. He was part of a, a blacklisted group that came to be known as the Hollywood Ten. And so he actually ended up co-writing the script for Gun Crazy, and he later went on to write Exodus and Spartacus, and I believe he co-wrote Roman Holiday as well, if memory serves. And this was actually a bigger budget, <laughs> not a big budget film, but a bigger one than Lewis was used to working with. They shot the film in 30 days for about $400,000. And initially, uh, despite Lewis's objections, the film was released under the title Deadly as the Female. Lewis, of course, wanted to stick with the title Gun Crazy, but, I don't know, the producers and the distributors didn't listen to him, ultimately. And the film did end up getting re-released later that year as Gun Crazy, because, of course, nobody went to see it when it was released under the original title. And uh, that second effort really didn't do much for them, because uh, the film didn't, really didn't make much money, ultimately. Uh, but it remains Joseph H. Lewis's favorite, and even though it was a bit of a dud upon its release, today it is regarded as one of the best noir films ever made. And uh, I agree wholeheartedly. And ultimately, if you had to sum it up, it's basically Bonnie and Clyde before Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, the two characters are 
from what I understand, are loosely inspired by the real Bonnie and Clyde. And the film with Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway didn't come out until 1967, so cinematically, at least, Gun Crazy did it first. And many years prior, in fact. So this film led Lewis to MGM, where he had worked in his youth, in fact, and he was very excited about returning to the studio to work as a director this time. And the first film he made for them was called A Lady Without Passport, which came out the same year as Gun Crazy, 1950 again. It was not an unusual occurrence for Lewis to crank out two films in a single year. And that fo this film follows an undercover immigration agent, and he ends up going to Cuba for an assignment, and he's trying to bust an illegal smuggling ring, an illegal immigration ring, rather, that is uh, bringing immigrants into the United States through Cuba. And while there, he meets a concentration camp survivor, and he starts thinking maybe he can use her as uh, as an informant to get closer to uh, the leader of this operation who's played by George McCready. It's an okay film, kind of like So Dark the Night. It takes a while to get going and switch gears. It's with John Hodiak, Henny Lamar, George McCready, who of course plays the villain, uh, and Stephen Jure comes back to, in, a, in a tiny part, and he's actually, it's a, it's a memorable little appearance, but whatever, it's not appointment viewing by any means. I mean, Hedy Lamar is the woman of the title, the lady without passport, but she's really just kind of an ancillary character. I mean, the story's not really about her. In any case, not something, uh, not something that I would call a must-see if you're going to take a dive into Lewis's work. And uh, he stayed busy after that. He made uh, Retreat Hell, which was a war film, and uh, the adventure film Desperate Search, which came out in 1952. And he also made a film called Cry of the Hunted, again for MGM, which came out in 1953. And this one is... The story of a lawman who works for the state, played by Barry Sullivan, and it's basically a chase film. He has to track down an escaped prisoner, played by Vittorio Gassman, and the, this whole debacle takes him through the, the Louisiana bayou, and he's trying to track him down, and so on and so forth. It's not a great film, pretty sort of standard fare. Again, not appointment viewing. It's a good cast. I mean, Barry Sullivan, Vittorio Gassman, Polly Bergen, who was in the original Cape Fear and guest starred on The Sopranos as well. Uh, and William Conrad, who was in uh, Old Fatso, who was in the series Canon. The two of them are very good in this, but whatever. It's it's pretty formulaic. The interesting thing about it is there's this homoerotic subtext between Barry Sullivan and Vittorio Gassman's characters. And there's this, this scene at the beginning of the film where Barry Sullivan works for the state and Gassman is the prisoner. And he's talking to him in his cell and they end up having this tussle. And they're wrestling on the ground and the two of them end up all sweaty and they're sitting next to each other afterwards and sharing a cigarette almost like they just had like some lover's quarrel or makeup sex. And whatever, there's a fever dream sequence that's not bad. The woman who plays Gaspin's wife in the film is terrible. Mary Zavian is her name. I have no idea what her accent is supposed to be and she delivers every line. It's just all very sort of forced and clunky and I don't like her in this at all. But in any case, I've already said too much about this film. And this leads us to a film called The Big Combo, which came out in 1955. Lewis made this for Allied Artists, which was previously known as Monogram, the studio he had worked for before early in his career. This film and Gun Crazy might be Lewis's two best. And this one is considered one of the last great noir films, and rightfully so. And so it follows Cornell Wilde as a police lieutenant named Leonard Diamond, who's been obsessively investigating a squeaky clean crime boss known as Mr. Brown, who's played by Richard Conti. And he keeps trying desperately to get a break in the case, and he resorts to going through Brown's girlfriend, who he may be in love with. And Brown's girlfriend, Susan Lowell, is in a bit of a tough spot. She's basically a prisoner or a slave to Mr. Brown. He doesn't let her go anywhere by herself. He often has his, his bodyguards, his henchmen, tailing her all over the place. He's extremely possessive of her. And she's a former piano prodigy, and she is in a terrible state over just, you know, what her life has become and the jam that she's in with Mr. Brown, and there's a bit of self-loathing there, and ultimately just her her despair prompts her to attempt suicide. 
And it's while recovering from her suicide in the hospital that she utters the, the name Alicia, which is the first semblance of a lead that Leonard Diamond has, and it's that lead that he follows in his investigation of Brown. And it leads him to find out that Brown was in fact married, and Diamond initially believes that Brown killed his wife, but he comes to find out that he actually killed an associate to take power and take his position as a, an all-powerful crime boss, and that he's in, he in fact has been hiding his wife in a sanatorium for years. Meanwhile, as Diamond's investigation develops and as he finds out more, Brown, the previously squeaky clean, unflappable Brown, begins cracking and taking bigger risks, and violence ends up erupting, and the whole thing leads to a showdown between the two, which I won't go into detail about, of course, because I'll spoil it for you. Let's talk about the cast quickly before we get into the nitty-gritty. So, like I said, Cornell Wilde is the star. He got nominated for an Oscar in 1945 for playing Frédéric Chopin in uh, A Song to Remember, and later became a director himself. Is there anything else, Captain? Yeah, it's a girl. Susan Lowell. Had a tail on her for six months. Why? She's Brown's girl. She's our most valuable lead. We know next to nothing about Brown, but a woman knows. She makes it her business to know. If I can get hold of her and make her talk. Oh, man, Eddie, you spent six months trying. She went to Vegas, you went to Vegas. Yeah. She flew to Cuba, you flew to Cuba. Couldn't get authorization for the expense. Paid it out of your own pocket. I had to. You wouldn't back me up. Well, I'm not in love with her, Leonard. You are. Richard Conti plays Mr. Brown. He was in the Jules Dassin film Thieves Highway in 1949, and he's probably best known as Don Barzini in the first Godfather film, uh, and he is excellent in this. Now, Benny, who runs the world? Have you any idea? Not me, Mr. Brown. That's right, not you. But a funny thing. They're not so much different from you. But they've got something. They've got it, and they use it. I've got it. He hasn't. So what is it, Benny? What makes the difference? Hate. Hate is the word, Benny. Hate the man who tries to beat you. Kill him, Benny, kill him! Hate him till you see red and you'll come out winning the big money. And the girls will come tumbling after. You'll have to shut off your phone and lock the door to get a night's rest. Gene Wallace plays Susan Lowell, who is Mr. Brown's lady and who is basically relegated to being his slave. Uh, Gene Wallace and Cornell Wilde were actually husband and wife in real life. They were married at the time this film was made. Brian Dunleavy plays Joe McClure, who is Mr. Brown's right-hand man and was formerly the big shot in town until Mr. Brown stepped in, took everything that was his, and basically relegated him to his flunky. Needless to say, McClure's character isn't very well respected by, uh, by his peers. Uh, and Brian Dunleavy was a great actor. He was in the Preston Sturgis film The Great McGinty, and he was also in Kiss of Death, another classic noir film with Victor Mature and Richard Widmark, which came out in 1947. Robert Middleton plays Captain Peterson, Leonard Diamond's commanding officer. The great Lee Van Cleef and Earl Holloman play the two henchmen of, of Mr. Brown's, uh, Fanti and Mingo. Now, we know Lee Van Cleef from the great spaghetti westerns that Sergio Leone directed with Clint Eastwood. He was in uh, For a Few Dollars More, and he plays Angel Eyes in uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Quit shaking. What did he ask you? A girl's name. That's all he could ask me. He just kept asking me this girl's name. Like he was nuts. He's crazy. What girl? They knocked it out of my head. I don't know. Alice something or another. Alicia, that's what it was. Alicia. What'd you tell him? Exactly what I know. <laughs> Nothing. 
and Earl Holliman plays Mingo. He was in Police Woman with Angie Dickinson. He was in the film Giant with Rock Hudson, Liz Taylor, and James Dean. And he is still with us. He is 93 years old. And Helen Walker plays Alicia, the woman who is revealed as uh, Mr. Brown's wife. This was uh, the last film of her career, I believe. She died young of cancer. Jay Adler plays Sam who is Leonard Diamond's partner. Jay Adler basically came from an acting dynasty. His family was very active in the Yiddish theater. His parents were actors, and he was actually the brother of the great drama coach Stella Adler. John Hoyt, another great character actor who I love, had over 200 credits, did most of his work in television. Uh, He was also in the great Jules Dassin film Brute Force. He plays Niels Dreyer in this, a Swedish boat captain turned antique dealer who, uh, it turns out, is involved in this case involving Mr. Brown's wife and uh, the murder of his former associate. Ted DeCorsia shows up in this, another great character actor. He was in The Naked City, yet again directed by Jules Dassin, and he was also in the great noir film The Killing, which is one of Stanley Kubrick's earliest films in 1956. He plays another wise guy who uh, has some intimate knowledge of uh, Mr. Brown's past. And the script was written by Philip Jordan. It was originally titled The Hoodlum, and it was produced by Jordan and Sidney Harmon through their production company Security Pictures, and it was also uh, co-produced by Cornell Wilde and Gene Wallace through their company Theodora. Like I said, they were husband and wife at the time. And the performances are wonderful. And I guess the main thing to remember about the the three lead performances, Cornell Wilde as Diamond, Richard Conti as Mr. Brown, and Gene Wallace as Susan, is that all three of these people are pretty obsessive in their behavior. You have Diamond, who is a dogged detective, and he's obsessed with bringing down Brown. And yes, it's, I suppose, partly driven by his feelings for Susan. But yet again, the, his investigation is pretty much all-consuming. Combination keeps no books, no records. Everything's run on word of mouth and hard cash. That's their one weakness. What? They have to have a treasurer. So? And I know his name. The name of a man who can pick up a phone and call Chicago and New Orleans and say, Hey, uh, Bill. Joe was coming down for the weekend, advance him 50000 and he hangs up the phone and the money is advanced. Protection money. The new all-night bar opens with gambling outside city limits. A bunch of high school kids come in for a good time. They get loaded, they get irresponsible. They lose their shirts, and they get a gun because they're worried. They want to make up their losses. And a filling station attendant is dead with a bullet in his liver. I have to see four kids on trial for first-degree murder. Look at it. First-degree murder because a certain Mr. Brown picked up a phone. Uh, You have Brown, who is obsessed with sort of keeping up this charade and, you know, keeping the secret about his past under wraps. And, of course, he is is determined to keep Susan all to himself. And, like I said, he basically makes her his slave, knowing all the while that Leonard Diamond is pining for her. Diamond, the only trouble with you is you'd like to be me. You'd like to have my organization, my influence, my fix. You can't. It's impossible. You think it's money. It's not. It's personality. You haven't got a lieutenant. You're a cop. Slow, steady, intelligent, with a bad temper and a gun under your arm. And with a big yen for a girl you can't have. First is first and second is nobody. And you have Susan, who basically thinks of nothing else but what her life has become over the course of her relationship with Mr. Brown and, of course, how she can leave him. I didn't come here to hurt you, Miss Lowell. You don't have to see me again or even speak to me again, but save yourself, leave him. How? All you have to do is walk out. Is that all, Mr. Diamond? You followed me long enough to know I can't. I live in a maze, Mr. Diamond. A strange, blind, and backward maze. 
and all the little twisting paths lead back to Mr. Brown. So all three of these characters are pretty single-minded, you know, this one-track minds. And not only are their performances great, the visuals are lovely. The I believe there was talks of shooting this in color initially. They ended up shooting it in black and white, and thank God they did. Um, great visuals from John Alton, who was the cinematographer on this. And there's that this lovely sort of chiaroscuro aesthetic, and, and there's the famous sequence at the end. I won't go into too much detail. It's really lovely where they play with the light and the fog and the shadows, and it's kind of reminiscent of Casablanca. Some people say it's a ripoff of the ending sequence. I disagree, but it's a lovely, lovely visual of Diamond as he's, as he's walking away. He turns to Gene Wallace, uh, Susan Lowell, and as he begins walking away, she soon follows behind him as they walk into the fog, and it's, it's a stunning, stunning visual and a, and a lovely way to end the film. Interestingly enough, there was some controversy surrounding this film at the time. Keep in mind this is in 1955, different standards. It's credited as the first American film to imply cunnilingus, not de not depicted outright. And this was in a scene between Richard Conti and Gene Wallace. He starts passionately kissing her, and the camera's pretty close in on them, and it shows Conti just sort of making his way down her body, and of course it's implied that he starts going down on her, and she moans in ecstasy, and so on and so forth. Uh, but it's all done pretty tastefully, I must say. But again, it was considered very, very bold, very daring for its time. The only film prior to that that depicted that kind of sensuality, or was that bold in its depiction of sensuality, uh, was a film called Ecstasy, which coincidentally starred Hedy Lamarr. And uh, it, Lewis ended up fighting with the censorship board over it, but ultimately it was kept in the final cut, luckily. And another thing that made it interesting for its time, we talked about the homoerotic subtext of uh, Cry of the Hunted here, the characters of Fanti and Mingo, played by Lee Van Cleef and Earl Holliman, Mr. Brown's two henchmen, there's an implied gay relationship between the two of them. The two of them are very tight, they're beloved friends, there's a bit of a Bert and Ernie thing going on, like they share a bedroom but sleep in separate beds, so there's, there's, you know, there's some implication that the two of them are a little more than friends, but in any case, again, very sort of risque and daring for its time, and Earl Holliman, coincidentally, I believe he's... I don't know if he was gay or bi, but in any case, and there's some other there's some other really clever things. There's uh, the way they they play with sound is really cool. In in the scene where I'm gonna spoil it, where uh, Brian Dunleavy's character McClure is killed, his character uses a hearing aid. He's hard of hearing, and he ends up betraying Mr. Brown because he used to be the big man about town. Mr. Brown took over his operation. He's jealous and resentful, and he wants to sort of take his power back. But of course, his plot is foiled. And Mr. Brown takes a little mercy on him, and as Fanti and Mingo open fire on McClure, of course it's shown from the point of view of McClure's character, and without his hearing aid, of course, he can't hear the gunfire. And so the sound cuts out as Fanti and Mingo are shooting bullets into McClure. It's a really clever and memorable sequence. Uh, and there's the famous torture scene, of course, where they use the hearing aid again. They take McClure's hearing aid, they put it on uh, Leonard Diamond after they've captured him and tied him to a chair. They put the hearing aid on, they hold the radio up close, as they're trying to get information out of him, and of course, you know, your imagination can fill in the rest. And uh, again, that, for its time, that scene was considered especially brutal and sadistic and graphic. Uh, and yet again, a lot of other great, long, one-shot takes. There are too many to go through one by one, but I will say my favorite one is John Hoyt's scene. It's the only scene he's in. It's a one-shot, in uninterrupted take. It's about four minutes long. And again, it's just the camera slowly moving with Hoyt as he moves around his antique shop and Diamond is sweating him for information and he's evasive and trying to play tough nut to crack and Hoyt is fantastic in it as always. Mr. Diamond, I was a seaman for 30 years. I went to sea aged 14. 
I've seen storms, I've seen gunfire, I've seen torpedoes. I've been wrecked not once, four times, on a raft, 37 days, nothing but water. Nothing kills me. I'll die in Stockholm like my great-grandfather, age 93. I'm not scared of anyone, including you, so get out. And another interesting casting note, Jack Palance was initially cast as Mr. Brown, and Jack Palance, if you've seen him, I mean, he's got that great physicality and that sort of rugged, severe face, if you will. So he played. He was a natural heavy, and he played a lot of heavies over the course of his career. But uh, just as shooting was about to begin, I believe he and the producers kind of butted heads, and he kind of perplexed Lewis a little bit. He's talked about in interviews, and they ended up canning him. And uh, Lewis and Richard Conti knew each other. He immediately thought of Conti to step in to play Mr. Brown, and he's basically a complete opposite of Jack Palance. And they tracked down Richard Conti to a, a tennis club that he was a member of. They sent him the script, and he went to work the next day. And uh, he is fantastic in this. And it's especially important because you have Cornell Wilde, who's this big, sort of barrel-chested, you know, your classic sort of hard-boiled detective. If you put him next to Palance, you know, that tall, big, and, you know, just very physical kind of actor. I mean, it's basically just, you know, masculinity on steroids. But casting Richard Conti, who's a little, you know, a little more slight of frame, and he's got that that refined and sort of suave demeanor about him, and he's got that that swagger, that arrogance of the man who has everything. And it's the perfect contrast to Cornell Wilde's character, so it turned out to work beautifully. Joe, tell the man I'm going to break him so fast he won't have time to change his pants. Tell him the next time I see him, he'll be down in the lobby of the hotel crying like a baby and asking for a $10 loan. Tell him that. And tell him I don't break my word. He must have done something pretty fine to get as high as you are, Mr. Brown. I'm looking into that. I'm going to open you up and I'm going to operate. I hate to think of what I'll find. But I tell you, Joe, a righteous man. And another thing I like is the the relationship between Fanti and Mingo because in a lot of these crime films you see the henchmen, they're, they're sort of these one-note characters and kind of dim-witted, you know, there's really not much to them, but Fanti and Mingo, with the relationship they have, you see them and these two henchmen are basically... They're complete human beings, which defies a certain trope or a certain cliché that shows up in a lot of these crime films, right? And the two of them are wonderful in it, Lee Van Cleef especially. Let me have him, Fanny. Two minutes is all I'll need. What for? I want to ask him one question. All right, go ahead. It's all yours. But first... Hey. Fanny, we're friends. You don't hold up a friend. Hey. Didn't Mr. Brown pay you? You're not Mr. Brown. For Mr. Brown, I'd snatch a judge from a superior court for a chocolate soda. Same goes for Mingo. Right, Mingo? Yeah. How much? A hundred. For Mingo, too. What? A hundred each. Mingo. Thanks, Fanny. Now ask him all the questions you want. And so, yeah, this is, uh... Again, it's heralded as one of the last great noir films because, I mean, the genre by 1960 had kind of fizzled out. Uh, and I agree wholeheartedly with that assessment between the, the performances, the visuals, the jazzy score, the whole thing. It is, it is a wonderful film and one of Lewis's best. This and Gun Crazy are, are appointment viewing if you're going to start with any two films. And so after this, uh, Lewis went back to work and he went back to directing westerns. So westerns kind of bookend his career. He started directing them for Universal 
early on in his career, and then he he ended his career as a filmmaker with westerns. Uh, the last film he directed was called Terror in a Te- Texas Town, which came out in 1958, starring the great Sterling Hayden, who I love a lot. And after that film, he transitioned to TV and started directing westerns there as well. He directed uh, Gunsmoke, he directed over 50 episodes of The Rifleman, which uh, starred Chuck Connors. He directed an episode of Bonanza as well. He only did one, and it was a dreadful experience for him. The, the lead actors wouldn't take their work seriously, and uh, they proved to be a major pain in the ass. And uh, Lewis refused to work with them again after that, that one episode. And all told, he directed over 80 episodes of television, uh, and ultimately retired kind of young before he turned 60. Uh, in 1966, and this was at his wife's behest because Lewis had had a heart attack at the age of 46. And, uh, you know, given his work rate and just how prolific he was, his wife was worried that uh, he died before his time, essentially. And so even though he retired fairly young for a man of his profession, uh, he didn't fade into obscurity by any means, was not a recluse. I mean, he, of course, spent a lot of time on his boat. And like we said before, a lot of his films kind of, uh, they had a bit of a second wind. They were much more appreciated as works of art well after their release. And so uh, Lewis spent much of his later life basically just traveling around the world and going to festivals and giving talks at screenings of his films. And ultimately, he uh, died on August 30th, 2000, at the age of 93 of natural causes in Los Angeles, where he had been living for uh, most of his life. And he was survived by his wife, Buena, and his daughter, Candy Lewis Sangster. And so, in summation, before we wrap up, just looking at uh, Lewis's work and his career as a whole, I mean, to call him a B-movie director is accurate, but it also doesn't do him justice. The man was an artist, no doubt about it, and he was someone, again, like I said a couple times over the course of this show, he was someone who knew how to make the most of limited means, limited budgets, limited resources, and he elevated his films into works of art. You know, he transcended the sort of the label of, of B-film and whatever connotations and limitations came with it. And he ended up making some of the most beloved film noirs of all time. I mean, that decade between the mid-40s and mid-50s, uh, he made a handful of great noirs, and they're still very highly regarded to this day. And they hold up very well, Gun Crazy and The Big Combo especially. And My Name is Julia Ross is still very respected, and it's been... It's come to be known as a great women's film, if you will, uh, of that era. And not just that, he was one of a handful of, of B-level directors who went on to have great careers. I mean, you have Jacques Tourneur, who made Out of the Past in 1947, which is one of the greatest noir films ever, with Robert Mitchum and Jane Greer and Kirk Douglas. And again, he was also a B-movie director. He made a career of making uh, low-budget horror films, essentially, which he uh, mostly made for RKO, where Lewis had worked on uh, The Falcon in San Francisco. You've got Ida Lupino as well, who we mentioned earlier, and we did an episode on her not too long ago. I encourage you to listen to it if you haven't already. A wonderful actress, a screenwriter, and a great director as well. And her too, she uh, she had her own production company. She made a handful of B-films in the late 40s and early 50s, very prolific as well. And like Lewis, worked with limited budgets, kept her shoots very tight, wasn't above repurposing discarded sets if she needed to, especially during the time she worked at RKO. And she went on to have a very prolific career in television, directed over 100 episodes of TV on all kinds of series, The Twilight Zone and Batman, you name it. And you've got the great Sam Fuller, who is one of my favorites, and he was a former newspaper man, and his films have this sort of pulpy quality about them. It's, it's part of what I love about them, honestly. And him too, he a lot like Lupino, he directed films that touched upon a lot of interesting social issues. I mean, you have The Crimson Kimono, which is another great noir, which came out in 1959, which which has a lot of commentary on Japanese-American identity. One of the, the main characters is played by James Shigeta, who is a Japanese-American actor. 
Uh, you have Shock Corridor as well, which takes place mostly in a mental hospital. And then you have The Naked Kiss, which deals with prostitution in a very unvarnished way, and it also talks about, you know, child abuse and child molestation. So Sam Fuller, again, much like Lewis and Lupino, made very daring films for his time, and these were all sort of B-level directors. And you have Roger Corman, who was the king of B-films, and granted, he was very prolific, and there's a lot of schlock in there. But to his credit, he gave a lot of young directors their starts, including Peter Bogdanovich, who interviewed Joseph H. Lewis in his book, uh, Who the Devil Made It, which I highly recommend. And a lot of these filmmakers came to be appreciated well after their works were released. I mean, you, people like Sam Fuller and Joseph H. Lewis especially, they were greatly appreciated in Europe, where you had the French New Wave of the late 50s and 60s, which was greatly influenced by American film noir, and the two of them made some great noirs over the course of their careers. And so all this to say, there's something to be said about these old workhorses and the kind of films they were able to produce with such limited means, you know? And that is just about all I got on uh, The Great Joseph H. Lewis. I hope you enjoyed. I hope you watch these old noir films he made. My name is Julia Ross, The Undercover Man, So Dark the Night, Gun Crazy, and The Big Combo especially. I adore those two films. Please give them, uh, give them a look-see. You won't be disappointed, especially if, uh, if you want to take a dive into old film noir. And uh, so that about wraps up this episode. If uh, you would like to hear more, you can uh, find us on the Spotify, the Apple Podcast, the Google Podcast, and the Podbean. We've covered John Cassavetes, George Roy Hill, Ida Lupino, like we said before, Jean-Pierre Melville, Elia Kazan, Alan J. Pakula, Tony Richardson. Subscribe, leave comments if you'd like, or whatever feedback you've got, feel free. And if you'd like to keep up with what's coming up next, follow us on the Instagram at Podcast, and you can also reach us by email at closesetpod at gmail.com. We've got a lot of goodies coming up for you, and our next one, which I am very excited about, we're going to be talking about the great director Elaine May, who is going to be receiving an honorary Oscar at uh, the Academy Awards uh, later this month. A much-deserved award, and I can't wait to talk about her films and her career as well. So uh, a lot of good stuff coming up. And so thank you again for tuning in, and until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. You're a beautiful girl, Rita. But you're stupid. Can't say anything nice without spoiling it. Why do you waste your time with a cop? Could get me a nice rich hoodlum. You should be able to recommend one with your connections. What is there about a hoodlum that appeals to certain women? Hoodlums, detectives. Woman doesn't care how a man makes his living. Only how he makes love. Who is she, Leonard? I'm stupid, Leonard. About everything but men. Them, I know. Give me my shoes. I'm going home. Put them on for me. When she hurts you again, baby, don't wait six months.